Welcome to Impressions America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Simon. Hey Simon. Um, coming up, we have a slight change in format for today's show. We uh, we have a special guest with us who is an actual real-life Republican, not just a fake one like Toby and me. And uh, that chat's coming up now and is on the 1984 election and features someone who was actually uh, around during that time. Enjoy that and then stick around after the actual interview and the to talk with our guest uh, because then we'll be kind of talking things over the three of us and discussing 84 and uh, discussing Reagan in general so uh, yeah stick around. Today we have a very special guest with us to look at the third part of our Ronald Reagan trilogy which is on the 1984 election. Peter Robinson is an American author, research fellow, television host and former speechwriter for then Pre- Vice President George H.W. Bush and President Ronald Reagan. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, Peter, I'd, I'd like to start by asking you to introduce yourself a little bit more to the audience, and in particular, your role as a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, and how you came to write for him. Mm. Well, I grew up in upstate New York. I attended an institution called Dartmouth College, uh, which is in New Hampshire, and I went from there to Oxford, where I read PPE, showing a lack of imagination because so many Americans who go there read PPE. I read PPE and um, stayed on for an additional year. After completing PPE, I rented a five-century-old cottage and stayed on for an additional year to write a novel. I'm only mentioning this because it plays a role in how I got a job as a speechwriter in the White House. This would be, and by this would be summer of 1982 when I realized that the novel was so bad that even I couldn't stand to read it. (laughs) And I got in touch with a number of friends asking for leads on jobs. One was the American journalist, conservative journalist, William F. Buckley. (laughs) And he wrote back, actually, he was one of them, very few who did take the time to write back. He wrote back and said, you like writing and politics, go to Washington, see if you can get a job as a speechwriter and pay a call on my son, Christopher. Christopher Buckley was then writing speeches for Vice President George H.W. Bush. I presented myself to Christopher Buckley in Washington in August, July, actually, late July of 1982. And to my astonishment, Christopher announced that he was leaving the job of speechwriter in a fortnight and that his replacement had just fallen through and that he couldn't see any good reason why I shouldn't write speeches for the vice president myself. And two weeks after that, I had a job writing for George H.W. Bush. And no one in the interviewing process ever asked if I had written a speech, which was very lucky for me because at that point, I had not. And that is how I got a job as a speechwriter. I was 25 in the Reagan White House. I wrote for the vice president for a little under a year and a half. There were a couple of openings on the president's staff at once. He had a staff, the vice president's operation was much smaller. Uh, I was the only writer. <laughs> I was, my title was chief speechwriter. What I did not also include on my business card was chief and only speechwriter. <laughs> but the president's staff was much larger. He had six writers. And it happened that about a year and a half after I got to the White House, two of them left at once. And they needed to hire somebody in a hurry just because of the workload. 
I was already in the building. The building in question is the old executive office building just across the street from the White House. I already knew the president's speechwriters, so they hired me. And that is how I got a job as a speechwriter in the Reagan White House. It's a very common tale for most Americans to get their first job via William F. Buckley, I hear. That's, uh... <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Happens, happened all the time. Happened all the time. <laughs> uh, just just kind of going into the actual topic of 1984 then, um, like I said, we, we've done a couple of episodes already and we've we've looked at Reagan in, in the Hollywood years and in the army and then we, we touched a bit on his a Time for Choosing speech and we touched on his, his uh, radio addresses that were done nationally after his two terms in California. And, you know, by 1980... Simon, Simon, who's... This is, to me, this is fascinating. And everything <laughs> you've just mentioned interests me. Interests you. But of course, I'm a... Totally different generation from the three of you. And who's your audience for this? I'm delighted an audience. I'm delighted you at least suppose an audience <laughs> exists. But who, who's listening to this? Um, it's it's it tends to be sort of Americans. Yeah. Um, maybe between the ages of twenty five and forty. So, but you know, oh, old, so it's people who it's people who. Re- People who missed it, they didn't experience it themselves. Yeah, they didn't experience it. Ah, they, they want yeah. to get an impression of it. So we, yes, <laughs> they, they, they yeah. come to us to be as amazed and bamboozled about, about American 20th century as we are. I think that's... <laughs> All right. Oh, that's fascinating. All yes. right. So, uh, Sorry, I threw you off. No, you, were in the I, middle, you were building up to a question and I just I, threw you off. Well, I was just building up to Ronald Reagan winning the 1980 election, but, you know, that, that mm. I'm sure that plays that through your tell. head most of the time anyway, Peter. Um so yeah, Reagan, as you might 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 or might not know, Peter, he he actually won the 1980 election, and yes, uh, he did so quite successfully. And I, I believe he carried 44 states, which is uh, really nothing to sniff at. I mean, it really was quite the victory. Um, I was in Oxford that, by the way, that oh yeah, the election evening, and I, can, I remember there was. This is a different. We're talking about a different. If the past is another country, is, <laughs> who was it? Hartley, the novelist Hartley wrote then. Oxford in 1980 was was Mars, but um, there's a professor of politics who was a tutor of mine called Peter Pulitzer, who is still around, and now he's at All Souls, Oxford. And Peter Pulitzer said to me, America thinks, this is a well, maybe a week before the election, America thinks it wants Ronald Reagan, needs John Anderson. John Anderson, now an almost entirely forgotten figure, he ran as a third-party candidate. And he said, but it will end up choosing Jimmy Carter. And in all of Oxford, my three years in Oxford, I only met one figure whom I, who I felt really approved of Ronald Reagan, and that was Lord Blake, Robert Blake, the great historian and Disraeli biographer. Anyway, it was a remarkable thing. I assumed that my Oxford tutors knew what they were talking about, and I was going to see Jimmy Carter win the election, and there mm-hmm. were a few of us Americans watching the television as one state after another got called for Ronald Reagan. It was quite an evening. Wow. Um, so my, my first question was actually going to be, and Peter, I don't know how how well you remember this or whether or not you'd uh, rather Toby picks it up, but I was wondering the kind of expectations for Ronald Reagan for his first term and kind of what he was setting out to achieve in that campaign. Do you think you've got any insight into that? Well, I can tell you what I what I, what I remember mm-hmm. is Go that Reagan, I, as I said, I was studying at Dartmouth College. I graduated from there in 1979. And candidates, the New Hampshire primary is still important. In those days, it was even more important. Mm-hmm. So virtually every presidential candidate came through Hanover so we could look at them all. 
And Reagan, Reagan was a, a very impressive, extremely well-spoken figure. Um, and I got, but, but there was a, the, I don't think among the faculty, they tended to look down at him. And then of course the mood in Oxford was among my dons was who, it was very, when Clark Clifford, who was by then former secretary of defense, one of the grand old men of the Democratic Party. He'd been a close assistant to Clark Clifford and had been a, a Democratic figure, major Democratic counselor in Washington ever since. And Clark Clifford is the one who summed it up and uttered the, fa the famous phrase that Ronald Reagan was an amiable dunce. <laughs> and that I believe was a, that was a fair, that fairly captures the expectations of Ronald Reagan among what what to call it, elite opinion or educated opinion or the the chattering classes to use Roy Jenkins' marvelous phrase. That I think is a fair expectation. What I felt in Oxford, this I can remember very vividly. I wasn't in those days, you know, 1980 was a long time ago. We didn't have the internet. There, the, I was reading newspapers, but American news got to Oxford quite late. You'd listen to the BBC. Alistair Cook was still doing his report from America in those days. So once a week, I could listen to an Englishman talk <laughs> about the American scene. So I wasn't able to follow the campaign in any detail. But what I remember acutely is, is the feeling of humiliation to be an American in Oxford and to have Jimmy Carter's rescue mission for the host. What I remember is the Iranian hostage crisis. And it was... It just unbelievable to me that the United States could be so humiliated and it felt personally humiliating to me. Not, I, not, not such that I wanted to string myself up or open, a, nothing, nothing like that, but it was, an, it was embarrassing to have my English friends at Oxford make a quip or a joke or some remark about, and, and that I felt, and that, that I suspect, again, I was in Oxford, not in the United States, but that feeling, not only that the country had in some way or other lost its bearings in some vague way, the price of oil was too high, OPEC had us over a barrel, so to speak, over an oil barrel, inflation was rising, unemployment was rising, the general sense that for a decade or more, the Soviets had been on the offensive and the United States had been placed on the defense, all of that got summed up in the hostage crisis and in the uh, America's See the the feeling that we were simply uh, unmanned, that there was nothing we could do about it. That I re that I think is the psychological background for that big victory in 1980. Have other guests said that, or am I all alone? <laughs> well, we've, we this is our first time covering the 1980 election, so oh, it is. All yes, right. I mean, well, I'll tell you. Here's the other bit about it that tends to be forgotten. Now I have found in talking to people. Because it was a big victory, it wasn't close in the end. Not a landslide. The landslide would come in 1984, but the 1980 victory was a totally unambiguous major victory. It is important to note that Ronald Reagan trailed Jimmy Carter in the polls all the way up to one week before Election Day. Uh, this is a topic I am reminding people of this over here because Donald Trump is behind Joe Biden with some 40 days or more, a little bit more than 40 days to go until election day here. Ronald Reagan trailed Jimmy Carter until one week before election day. What happened one week before the election day? Those two men, 
encountered each other in the first and only debate of the 1980 campaign. And Americans got a chance to see Ronald Reagan with their own, Jimmy Carter fairly well understood. He'd been president for four years. People had seen him over and over again on television. But Ronald Reagan, for again, I'm going back to 1980, he was a figure of the West Coast. He had been governor of California. And in those days, California was a long way away from the centers of population and media, all of which were well east of the Mississippi. And so the, what, 70%, I'm off on the calculation, 70 or 75% of the American population that lived east of the Mississippi got to see Ronald Reagan unfiltered. That is to say, no, no, no reporters presenting him. They got to see him as he was for the first time. And they decided he wasn't quite such an ogre. He seemed to make sense. He seemed even likable. And the polls began to move. Hmm, that is interesting. Yeah, um, and I would say that once Reagan comes in, I mean, a lot of people did see Reagan as like soft intellectually, but he brought with him a a, a revolution of the sort of uh, new blood into Washington. And, and their view was that the stagflation could be um, subsided by the, the new policies, su supply side economics, the focus much more on the on the monetary side than the fiscal side that the old uh, liberal Democrats had focused on. And on the and on the level of foreign policy, there was a switch away from um, Kissinger and Ford and to a lesser extent Carter's uh, view of detente with the Soviet Union to a much more sort of mus muscular and uh, higher military spending at, towards a policy that was much more I think aggressive towards the the Soviet Union, they they increased spending, and the Soviets actually kind of thought that Ronald Reagan was a, a madman in the in the in the early period. And I think Toby Toby Alawi, for that beautiful summary, you get a triple alpha, beautifully <laughs> stated. <laughs> you don't know how long Toby's been waiting to hear a Republican tell that. <laughs> From Buckley, I just <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and. Um, but what happens um, in 1981 and, and in 1982 is that Reaganomics doesn't seem to be landing well economically. I mean, the, the, it was really a carry on from the stagflation of the, the Carter administration. But the uh oh, <laughs> down, down, down to a down to a down to a gamma, I'm afraid. <laughs> but the uh, the Fed. Started having there you go. The Fed, the Fed, the what happens in the this is my take on it. Yeah, what happens in the first couple of years of the administration, it, Reagan does enact a, a, a tax cut and across the board quite sharp personal income tax rate. At the, the upper rate is dropped from 70 percent down to 30. What did it come out to be? About 33 percent. Huge cut at the upper levels. Mm -hmm. And he also shrinks this complicated system of progressive income taxation to three simple, straightforward brackets. However, to get the deal done in Congress, the administration agreed that it would not take effect until 1983. So you've got a tax cut, but it's only in prospect. It doesn't help for the first couple of years of the administration. And what does be the, the economic policy that does change right away is that Paul Volcker, chairman of the Fed, Inflation is in, in double digits. It's the, the highest it's been since the Civil War. 
in the United States. And Paul Volcker, taking a page from the monetarist policies of Milton Friedman, simply stamps on the money supply. And the economy goes into quite a sharp recession. It hurts Reagan very badly politically. In fact, in the 1982 midterm elections, the Republicans lost, I think I can still remember the number, the Republicans lost 27 seats in the House of Representatives. It was bad. The economy didn't begin to turn around until 1983 or so, but by 1984, it was roaring back. But in my judgment, the, the sharp contraction took place because Paul Volcker at the Fed just stamped on the money supply to wring inflation out of the economy. By the way, I talked about that years later with Milton Friedman, and Friedman made the point that Reagan's inaction at that point, Reagan and Paul Volcker as chairman of the Fed would have lunch every couple of weeks. And believe me, I remember this vividly, there were all kinds of staff in the White House who wanted the president to say to Paul Volcker, let up, this recession is too steep, the country can't take it, the unemployment is rising too sharply, ease up on your actions. And Reagan never did that, he insisted that Paul Volcker use his own judgment and go right ahead, inflation had to be dealt with. Milton Friedman's judgment was that there was no other man who might conceivably have been president at that man or woman who might conceivably have been president at that time who would have, who would not have leaned on Paul Volcker. Reagan took the recession, happened early in his first term, but Reagan accepted that as the price of wringing inflation out of the economy. By 1984, inflation was down to low, uh, low single digits for the first time in months and months and months, first time in several years. Anyway, so even, even in permitting Volcker, uh, even in permitting Volcker to stamp the economy, that in the view of Milton Friedman was a remarkable, was a remarkable step in itself. Um, Have I bored you? Numbed you? Yeah, that, that was excellent. That was that was really uh, that was really. I mean, you know, it, it's always nice to hear when uh, people can just name drop the way you can, Peter. It's tr tr uh, tr <laughs> truly a skill, if nothing else. <laughs> um, one, we'll kind of move on to the democratic side uh, a, a little bit uh, later sure. on. Sure. I was just wondering, from, from your own perspective, Peter, how I suppose looking back at it now, or, or maybe maybe how you felt at the time. How strong a position do you think Reagan was in, you know, heading up to the 84 election? You know, we, we talked about, Very. you know, Very. we had we had this dip to begin with, you know, we wasn't able to yes. maybe make the gains he was kind of hoping. And by 84, you know, he's he's won, what, like 60 states rather than 49 of them. And it really was a landslide victory. Uh, can you maybe just talk a little bit about how he was able to present himself or how he was able to, you know, take his, um, his tenure in that first president's uh, first term and, you know, make himself the candidate right. who was all conquering. The recession, I can't at this remove, remember month by month, the economic developments, but of course, well, <clears throat> I began by saying that the psychological background to his administration, to the, his election in 1980 was the hostage crisis in Iran. And I should note that Iran released the hostages on the very day that Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. We'll have to wait an, another century until archives in Tehran are opened to the public, if indeed they ever are, to find out what the Iranian deliberations were. 
but it certainly felt to Americans that a president comes in who's strong and the Iranians decide they want they want to get on his good side right away. In any event, that was that gave Reagan instantly a certain stature. Let me talk about the foreign affairs first, if I may. Reagan, that gave Reagan a certain standing in the eyes of ordinary Americans. The hostages came home almost as he was taking the oath of office. Another event, I'll mention two more. Another event that showed Reagan's seriousness and that I believe had repercussions in foreign policy, but certainly affected his standing among ordinary Americans was the um, air traffic controllers strike. Air traffic controllers, the people who sit in the towers and tell airplanes which air uh, runways to use when they take off and land, went on strike. It happened to be the case that it was illegal for them to go on strike. And Ronald Reagan said, you have X period of time to come back to work. And after that, you're all fired. And the union and much of the press doubted that he would do that. How could you, how could you fire air traffic controllers? Airplanes would begin dropping out of the skies. And the Department of Transportation went in a kind of emergency research. How do you do that? Are there backups we can? It turned out there were backups. And Reagan fired them all. And uh, airplanes did not drop out of the sky. And the whole country thought, well, this is a serious figure. Last point on foreign policy, um, you get the feeling on that the Soviet Union is just increasingly decrepit. Suddenly Reagan comes in, we're spending more money on defense, and you've got a president who's standing up to the Soviet Union rhetorically. Brezhnev, this has happened during Reagan's first term, Brezhnev dies and Dropov comes in, he dies, Chernyenko comes in, He's still around in 1984, but now you're on your third so third old sickly Soviet leader in a period of just a few years. A final point to make is that when Reagan, Reagan gets elected, of course, and it's clear that he has a much firmer position toward the Soviets than did Jimmy Carter, at least than the early Jimmy Carter. Carter began to change his views after the Soviets invaded Af Afghanistan, but that was late in his the final year of his administration. The polls indicate, however, that after what, what was it, a decade or 15 years or so of detente and coexistence that begins with Nixon and goes through Ford and then most of Carter, that the American people weren't really with Reagan on standing up to the Soviets, that the American people had a higher opinion of the Soviets. And then a very important event took place. The Soviets shot down a Korean Airlines passenger uh, flight, passenger airline that happened to stray into Soviet airspace. I believe that's now been established that it did stray into Soviet airspace, but they simply shot it down. And of course, Reagan denounced the Soviets, but what happened was that the polls turned almost if, overnight that it, my, from to my way of thinking, it reminded the American people just what kind of regime they were dealing with in the Soviet Union. So although Reagan doesn't really make strides in the Cold War until the second term, in foreign policy, he's a strong figure, and the American people are, are behind him by and large, not entirely, but by and large, in the first term.
I say not entirely because, of course, there was the nuclear freeze movement. There were protests against his um, deployment of intermediate-range missiles in Europe in 1983. Okay, on the economic side, it's a much simpler story. By the election of 1984, the economy was booming. Inflation was down to, I, I seem to recall, I may be off on this, but by the summer of 1984, as they go into campaign season, as I recall, inflation was down to 4%. A dramatic turnaround from the campaign of 1980 when inflation was in double digits. And uh, the economy was expanding. The, the economy was adding, as I recall, again, I wrote speeches about this, so it stayed in my mind. The economy was adding more than 100,000 new jobs a month, which in those days was a lot of new jobs to be added each month. And so Reagan goes into the 1984 campaign ahead in the polls, and he just stays there through the entire election, through the entire campaign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess we should probably... Uh, for the sake of it, move on to uh, Reagan's opposition, or if that's, if you, if you call, call it such, uh, the, uh, the, the unlucky people who took him on. You want more for your kids than you had, and that's the American dream. Mondale and Ferraro bringing a new fairness to America. While Mr. Reagan tries to slash Medicare, they fight for seniors. While he forces four million people out of work, they fight for workers and on tax breaks. I refuse to make your family pay more so that millionaires can pay less. They'll be taking the first step in a new direction for America. Mondale Ferraro, for your future. Um, Looking on the, the left then, can you just kind of introduce our audience to kind of who the main players were? on the uh, can Demi i can i do this Simon? yeah go for it toby do you want to introduce the democratic uh candidates yeah so the key key players in this uh, democratic race were M mondale uh gary hart jesse jackson and then glenn but on the issue of mondale i think it, we should start with mondale because it sort of sets the scene of the the democrats really mondale was a sort of a New Deal liberal, and he had been mm -hmm. the vice president of uh, Jimmy Carter. And on That's Inauguration right. Day, he had, you know, he, he sort of watched this this procession, uh, this, uh, the, the, the changing of hands of power, but then he was, he saw that Reagan said on Inauguration Day that government, in this present crisis, government is yes. not the source of uh, the of, solution. The, yeah, it's not the solution. Um, government is the problem in this present crisis, and that really knocked Mondale because Mondale did not see the issues that way. And I mean, he he once he leaves office and becomes a private citizen, Mondale actually goes and uh, become goes and joins a lawyer law firm for for a little while. And he's sort of seeing the way things are changing in the culture. And he talks to people and some people say, you know, Reagan's really hard to beat. What, why are you thinking of actually taking him on? But he felt that he needed to take him on. He saw on the, the issues of civil rights, uh, child nutrition, on um, the, his vigorous support of the labor movement, on access to Medicare, that the Reagan administration was not doing what he had come to see uh, New Deal liberalism doing for people. And he also, although he was a cold warrior, you know, in the in the tradition of uh, Hubert Humphrey or Scoop Jackson, he did feel that uh, Reagan was too aggressive in his anti-Soviet 
policies. So uh, Mondale decides to to run for the, for the presidency, and, and he emerges in the beginning as the clear favorite. He is seen by many people actually as probably being in the middle of the pack. John Glenn was more of a cons conservative. He had voted to, for the budgets that Reagan had put forward. Um, on the other side, you had people like Jesse Jackson and even you know George McGovern, who was a very liberal uh, senator who had actually uh, run for the presidency in 1972 and been beaten handily by Richard Nixon. And you also had this new emerging uh, player called Gary Hart. And Gary Hart, he, he, he almost seems to be someone who um, was a precursor to the, to the changes in the Democratic Party that would come in the late 80s and into the 90s. He, he was seen by many people as a sort of neoliberal. And he, he, had, he, was, he was handsome. He had his almost Kennedy-esque style. He would put his hands in his pockets in the way Ken, Kennedy would. George Will famously said that his, like he's almost like uh, Jay Gatsby. His whole life is, is, is an art. And he came across as saying that he had new ideas, new ideas that, and in fact, once uh, Mondale polled um, the, the election in New, New Hampshire, he saw that Gary Hart was quite strong. And Mondale, although he was the prospective um, nominee or, or was the prospective favorite, he thought that it was going to be a very big challenge to beat Gary Hart. And I think it's it's it becomes this um, three three horse race with Mondale, Gary Hart, and Jesse Jackson. And Jesse Jackson, as uh, many people know, used to work for uh, Martin Luther King. He was actually there on the day that Martin Luther King was shot. In fact, he was covered in um, MLK's blood uh, on that day, and he rushed to the um, to the reporters and and many people saw that that was almost the spiritual handing over of the the leadership of of, of, of black americans to to uh, jesse jackson although he did not become leader of the of um, martin luther king's organization he eventually would get into politics and would would lead campaigns or or, or sort of political coalitions that really um looked towards the third world they were third worlders internationalists they um some of them you know mixed with the people on the right and people on on the left but eventually jesse jackson would come into his own in full view as a liberal democrat he he supported things like affirmative action he also supported uh, other policies like um, reparations for African Americans, he obviously supported the ERA. He was against the Reagan uh, tax cut, and he really, really galvanized African Americans, especially wealthier African Americans. So, if less wealthy Af African Americans tend to vote, vote for Mondale or Hart, but yeah, so, but then, um, and he wins many states, especially in the South. But I think what. Have, what emerges is that Mondale and Gary Hart are really the, the, the strongest two candidates and Jesse Jackson is, a, is a, really a third third horse in, in, in the context. But Jesse Jackson 
also makes one of the biggest flubs or in 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 the campaign season which reagan has to respond to he, jesse jackson refers to jews as jaimes and um he's he sort of makes a derogatory comment towards uh jaime town and in, in the convention reagan comes out and says that you know the republican party is open to anyone apart from the bigots we open the jews but we are not open the bigots and i think jesse jackson is seen by many as a loose cannon and he's seen by young bill clinton who would go on to attack jackson and sister soldier in um in future campaigns as a source of maybe far less left extremism for the democratic party but the the main thrust of the, the campaign is between mondale and gary hart and although hart is strong in the initial part of the campaign what emerges is that Hart's policy platform is quite squishy. No one really knows what he believes. No one really knows what the new ideas are supposed to mean. And um, in a debate, Mondale is able to get catch Hart on this idea that you know he he, he asks him, "Where's the beef?" You know, like um, I think your policy uh, platform is baloney and that wears the beef line really catches on on television and many people play it many people refer to Hart in that way and they and um and i think Hart because he's not really seen as someone with experience and not really seen as someone with a concrete platform starts to tap down i think what Hart was able to get Mondale on and i think the republicans are able to exploit it in the, in 84 is the sense that Mondale is attached to a lot of democratic interest groups, especially uh, labor power. And I think because of this, Mondale is seen as quite redundant and old and, and he's doing politics in the way that old and new dealers were. And, and I think even though Mondale manages to win the primaries, he is hurt by the idea that he's old, redundant and attached to interest groups. Toby, you get, um, well, no, I'll give you a chance to go for full alpha marks on that one. <laughs> what about what about the good ship monkey business? No, you can't you, talk about Gary Hart and leave that out. You've got, you've got, you've got to do that. Because that, that was decisive. I have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's nasty work. You do it. I'm the guest. A, a true pre-Clinton in, in all sense of the terms, yes. Um, <laughs> Um, Gary mean, Hart also the Gary. Uh, I'll just do it quickly. Yes. Gary Hart also had a reputation <laughs> for extracurricular affairs of which his wife was perhaps not entirely aware, mm -hmm. and he was asked about this by the press, and he denied it and said, "Follow me. I'll prove it to you. Follow me," and he challenged the press to keep an eye on him. Soon thereafter, pictures of him with a an attractive woman, not his wife, seated on his lap on a boat, a pleasure boat in Florida called the monkey business. Of all things, the <laughs> boat was called the monkey business. I'm not making that up. And, um, and it was clear that he had challenged the press, denied the stories, and then gone to Florida and done exactly what rumors suggested he was up to. And that was heart simply collapsed at that point. The polls collapsed and he withdrew from the race shortly thereafter. So that did in Gary Hart. Toby, um, 
beautiful summary. Again, Toby knows his stuff. I, I think I would, to, to understand Reagan's victory in 84, the economy is huge. You also need to, well, here are the elements I would note. Jesse Jackson, an electrifying figure, and certainly seen in many ways as the successor of Martin Luther King, the slain, this martyred leader. Um, at the same time, though, as the economy is taking off, there are two groups in particular that are benefiting disproportionately. One group is women. It's in the early 1980s that women begin starting to um, found businesses. There were, again, I don't recall the statistics, but all economic recoveries tend to expand on the strength, not of big established corporations, but of the formation of new businesses. And women founded a large number of new businesses. The other group that did disproportionately well, I'm not saying they became rich, I'm just saying they moved up more quickly economically than other groups was African-Americans. And so Jesse Jackson, the argument that of the vision of the view of African-Americans as in one way or another oppressed, or of course there's a legacy of racism, but at the same time, hundreds of thousands, millions of African-Americans are actually doing better under Reagan, under those economic policies. And so that takes some of the appeal, it, 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 it deflates the argument a little bit. Reagan didn't get a, a large proportion of the African-American vote, but at the same time, they didn't come out in the same numbers that they would, same proportions that they would years later, for example, for Barack Obama. There's that. Two more points. One is that if you think of, particularly in the upper Midwest, and Mondale comes from Minnesota, if you think of the blue-collar Catholic laborer, the, the guy who's working in a car factory in his family, in Detroit, for example, the labor vote is typically a Democratic vote. But Reagan was patriotic, explicitly patriotic, standing up to the Soviets and working quite closely, it turned out, with a number of figures in labor. In the second term, when as the Cold War begins to unravel, and with the Reagan administration in particular helping Lech Wałęsa in Poland, Lane Kirkland, who is then running this the AFL-CIO, which was the biggest union uh, by far in those days, actually explicitly publicly helps the Reagan administration. So that Reagan is cutting into, the so-called Reagan Democrat, Reagan is cutting into the traditional New Deal coalition, denying it to Mondale. And then the other bit that needs to be borne in mind is the South. Back in, um, in the 1980s, roughly a third of Democrats in the South, I beg your pardon, roughly a third of Democrats in the House of Representatives tended to support Ronald Reagan. This is something that has to be stressed because these days, the Democratic Party is overwhelmingly liberal and the Republican Party is overwhelmingly conservative. As recently as the 1980s, both the Democrats and the Republicans were much more mixed ideologically as parties. And the Democrats in the South were quite conservative. Like these days, what has happened is simply that all those seats are held by Republicans now. So the South remains conservative, but they've realigned in party terms. The point is, though, is simply that the Democrats, Southern Democrats, who again were a major part 
of the traditional New Deal coalition and who supported Jimmy Carter because he was one of them, he was a Southern Democrat himself, went to Ronald Reagan. And if you deny Walter Mondale, who as Toby so rightly stated, was a kind of prototypical New Deal figure, he saw himself as standing in the tradition of Franklin Roosevelt and all the way through Harry Truman. Jimmy Carter's more complicated, but yes, Carter begins in some ways to become more liberal, but Mondale thinks of himself as representing the New Deal coalition and Reagan denies him large elements of that coalition, particularly labor and the South, with the result that Ronald Reagan wins 49 out of 50 states. And there's plenty of evidence that he could have won Minnesota and made it 50 out of 50, but that Reagan told his campaign staff, no, let's let Fritz, Fritz Mondale, let's let him at least win his own, his home state. <laughs> oh, what a gentleman. Oh. <laughs> Um, just just while we're kind of discussing the, the Democratic nominees, Peter, I, I was just wondering, do you have much insight with regards to kind of who the Republicans were or who the, the West Wing were kind of hoping would uh, would succeed on the, the Democratic ticket, you know, as far as who they'd want to take on? Or just, who just one thing before. Um, yes. On this issue, I think that when Nancy Reagan initially saw Gary Hart, she... And some polls did show that that Hart was closing out on Reagan, and she, and she saw mm -hmm. him as a you know handsome and someone who didn't necessarily have any fixed ideas and had this sort of Kennedy esque aesthetic to him. So yes, I think that was one moment maybe in the campaign when the 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 Republicans might not have preferred to run run against them. Well, I can't tell you. I remember, I was very junior. I was 1984. I was still only in my 20s. Uh, I wasn't privy to conversations with Mrs. Reagan, but I can tell you the candidate, the candidate I didn't want to run against. I didn't want to see Ronald Reagan, my president, run against, and that was Gary Hart. I felt the same way. You know, if he, he's, he was young, attractive, and the problem for President Reagan, one of the main lines of attack, the economy was was roaring, and it felt it felt likely that he'd win anyway, because with a strong economy, it's just hard to get your hands. It's hard to undercut an incumbent when the economy is strong. But Ronald Reagan was older. Again, we have to recalibrate our thinking from the present, where we have Donald Trump, who's seventy four. And Joe Biden is 77, and uh, uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is 80, and we're about to see confirmation hearings for a new justice on the Supreme Court, and the ranking Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee is Dianne Feinstein of my own state of California, and Dianne Feinstein is 87 years old. Things have changed. Ronald Reagan in 1984 was 73. He was a year, if I recall this correctly, he was a year younger going into his reelection than Donald Trump is now. Nevertheless, in 1980, 73 seemed old and Reagan had survived an assassination attempt mm -hmm. uh, that was a very serious matter. He was, a, a bullet plowed through his lung and stopped a quarter of an inch from his heart during his in March of, let's see, March of 81, the very first, just months after he was inaugurated. So um, the contrast between this young, well-spoken, vigorous 
uh, glamorous, really, figure of Gary Hart. I don't know why he felt glamorous because he wasn't a movie star, but he did. He modeled himself. There's no, there's no doubt that he modeled himself quite directly on on John Kennedy, and that contrast w worried me. I can tell you that, which is one reason I can remember the monkey business so vividly because it was <laughs> such a relief. Well, at least we won't have to deal with that. And of course, Reagan so expertly sort of turned that around in the '84 debates against uh, mm -hmm. Mondale with his Mondale. That's right. His his, his quote against. Uh, uh, I want to uh, hold his youth and inexperience against him, which um, it, it does seem that uh, I mean it was a brilliant, but iconic. that yeah. was in the second debate. Yep. But again, if I recall that correctly, that was in the second debate, and he needed a line like that in the second debate because in the first debate he had stumbled and lost his train of thought. Uh, in the White House, the feeling immediately after that first debate was that he had been overprepared that uh, the people who were then in charge of debate prep had given him one binder after another, and he was trying to be a good student and fill his, and that's not, in a campaign, and particularly with Ronald Reagan, you wanted him to be intuitive. And it's going into the second debate, they changed the kind of debate prep altogether. But he need, the first debate was a very, I, you know, I can remember watching that with a couple of other speechwriters and some of our pals in somebody's apartment, and it was a very unnerving debate for those of us who worked for the man. Mr. Reagan, after the election, is going to have to propose a tax increase. You know, I wasn't going to say this at all, but I can't help it. There you go again. <laughs> I don't have a plan to tax or increase taxes. I'm not going to increase taxes. I can understand why you are, Mr. Mondale, because as a senator, you voted 16 times to increase taxes. Mr. President, you said, there you go again. Right? Remember the last time you said that? Mm -hmm. You said it when President Carter said that you were going to cut Medicare. And you said, oh, no, there you go again, Mr. President. And what did you do right after the election? You went out and tried to cut $20 billion out of Medicare. And... And and so when I when you say there you go again, people remember this. I mean that's not actually uncommon from from what I've sort of looked up in in sort of recent history with regards to the sitting president actually having a difficult time during the first debate. I think yes. Obama had yes. the same issue. Clinton possibly did as well. Um, so yes, I, I guess as, as you say, it's a sitting president has spent four years having everybody say to him, <laughs> "Yes, sir, whatever you say, sir." And then he, then he walks into the debate and there's another man standing there who th whose entire intention is to humiliate and discombobulate the president. Yes, that's right. They, they get out of practice. Yeah. Um, so before we kind of uh, move towards the end of the show, I, I guess we probably should look at the debates. But just bef before we do, I was just hoping to kind of quickly touch on the, sort of the general message off each of the sides. From, from what I've, I've read the, and, and seen the adverts off, the Democrats were trying to paint a sort of more um, doom and gloom image of what America was at that time. Yes. Whereas yes. the Republicans, of course, were, you know, highly praising how well everything was going. And, you know, it, it seemed a much more patriotic, things are going well, keep with Reagan kind of message, whereas the Democrats were, you know, things yes. aren't quite as rosy as they're being painted. Yeah, right. I think right. that's exactly right. Reagan polled um, the public on some of his policies, he found out that they were sort of partially supportive, but not very supportive. They, they did have some misgivings about him on the issues in foreign, foreign policy. 
didn't necessarily want to tackle the, the Soviets as aggressively as he had. But there was a general sense in the culture that he had brought back a sense of confidence and optimism, sense of respect. And instead of running a policy-based campaign, they ran it on his record and a sort of general sense of um, just doing better and you know b- being patriotic. Well, yes and no. I mean, there were plenty of policy speeches, but the but the general <sighs> campaigns are just you, you you. A presidential campaign is is really not a time for to attempt to engage the nation in a policy seminar. I don't mean to characterize, well, actually, I guess I do for the purposes of argument. I'm I'm caricaturing your suggestion, Toby, but the a presidential campaign is a time to establish a kind of shared community of values. And it's quite right that Mondale's entire argument was, it's not as good as it looks to you. This is illusory. There are underlying <laughs> problems. It really isn't the way it seems. And partly through the genius, the production genius of Roger Ailes, the late Roger Ailes, who is more famous now for establishing Fox News, but Roger Ailes designed an advertising campaign in which the theme was, it's morning again in America. And these television commercials with lovely music and pictures of sunrises and guys getting dressed to go back to factory jobs at reopened factories or that resonated. Why did it resonate? Because it felt true to reality. The economy was growing again. The Iranian hostage crisis was over. We were rebuilding the military. There was a sense of reestablished national morale. Now, I say that. It felt that way to me. I thought the Reagan campaign was, Reagan was running a campaign that was truer to reality. But if you don't want to take my word for it, 49 out of 50 states thought so, too. On a Friday, just a few weeks ago, the barbershop closed three hours early. The mill shut its doors at noon. And all across the state, people were taking time out for something special. A train carrying the 40th president of the United States and bringing with it a new spirit of accomplishment and optimism and pride because in the past three and a half years things have been looking up in the country today the economy is up taxes and inflation are down americans are working again and so is america so while some folks might have come so they could tell their grandchildren they saw president reagan most of them just stopped by to say thanks president reagan leadership that's working and these adverts they were very cinematic it was really the first time adverts like this had been done i think the the morning in america advert starts with you know today more men women will go to work than ever before in our country's history it it lists off how you know more women young men and women will be married with less inflation and um, yeah, it's all thanks to the leadership of Ronald Reagan. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? It's morning again in America. 
today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? And it ends with a, with a guy sort of pulling up a, an American flag. It, it's really... It's really quite wonderful, actually. And I, I still, I, and it re- I still think so. Actually, I beg your pardon, Toby. And it captures the mood that yes, of the country yes. at the time. It was true. It was true to the way. It was true to re- to reality. More people were going back to work. There was the other bit of this. I'm remembering this now for the first time. The other bit of this, which had nothing to do with the Reagan campaign, of course, but it did feed into the national mood was that the 1984 Summer Olympics took place in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So all that summer, we Americans were not just watching political conventions and listening to Mondale give speeches and listening to Reagan give speeches. We were also watching these glorious Olympics, which were just, it was Los Angeles. It was the home of Hollywood. They were beautifully produced. And I can't quite recall the numbers who won what, but I think that was the year Bruce Jenner won the decathlon. Yeah. So the American teams did very, very well. And I remember, this was, again, I was still in my 20s at that stage, but I remember just being glued to the television because the Olympics were so much fun and so patriotic. It all fed into the, to the mood. And there's a clip of Reagan. Excuse me, I don't want to just call it mood. That bit was mood, but it, there was a re- the mood was based on reality. The jobs were returning were returning there was a, the economy was turning around and there's a clip of reagan at the olympics um telling the u.s teams to bring it back home for me and then the crowd just bursts out into usa usa, <laughs> USA. yes 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 i remember those chants of usa i remember that yes yeah well to quote 30 rock yeah. everything's been okay since jimmy carter left office so um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just just we, we did touch upon the the, the debates obviously to begin with at the start of the or near the start of the episode peter you were saying that you know reagan was ahead in 84 and he stayed ahead, ahead in 84 and he had a massive victory but then we also yes. did touch upon that reagan stumbled in the first debate and that he maybe yes, he felt did. some pressure how when we talk about stumble how how close was he ever actually to sort of losing any real kind of lead or momentum kind of you know I'll, I'll phrase the question this way: If he'd continued to have such poor debates, and his, you know his age had shown, or he was seeming incapable to maybe keep up with Mondale in the debates, do you think he? Do you think we would have been looking at simply a smaller victory, or do you? Do you yes, was, was yes, there a smaller any, victory. Yeah. Smaller victory. He he. The economy was so strong. The the underlying fundamentals, the underlying reality was so strong, and people. By this is the other thing. <laughs> when we've been through, again, we have to kind of recalibrate our thinking. 
we have a president now who's so unpopular, just so many people just dislike him. Uh, I don't know that anybody dislikes Joe Biden in quite the same way, but I don't also don't see or sense, could be wrong about this, but I don't see or sense real affection for him. Hillary Clinton, amazingly enough, was even more disliked four years ago than was Donald Trump. So we've been through a string of candidates whom people just don't really take to. There was an underlying affection for Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, it, 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 I support Donald Trump, but it's true to say that even his friends seem to find him very hard to take. Whereas even Ronald Reagan's enemies found it difficult to hold anything against him personally. So even if he had stumbled and shown his age, I believe he would have been reelected, uh, but, but with a smaller margin. Yeah, so after the first debate, there's this, I mean, Reagan was still held head of the polls. It, it wasn't close, but there was a sense that his age was really affecting him. They, mm -hmm. in the media, they quoted a, a, a management executive who said he, he would struggle to put Reagan in a corporate managerial or corporate presidency, let alone the, 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 the presidency. And there, there was a sense that the age issue was emerging mm -hmm. for the, mm -hmm. almost for the first time. I think what, what, what well, it was, it was, it was used against him in the 80 primaries as well. Oh, by uh, H.W. Uh, Bush, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Ray, again, we, we have to recalibrate. Ronald Reagan was 68 during those primaries. And in yeah. those days, that was considered quite old for a man running for president. But it really stuck, stuck to him in the, in the, I think in the media cycle straight afterwards, but Roger Ailes was able to come to Reagan afterwards, show him the polling data, and then try to put together a response to this, which he does make in the second debate against uh, Mondale. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, we are sort of heading towards the hour now. Um, I suppose the only good lord of, we are oh I my goodness i've lost i've lost i'm sorry i have we, we've here just, in california i have a phone call that i'm scheduled to make but okay. i've been so enjoying listening to <laughs> okay. toby toby has lulled me into it sheer inattention i'm so enjoying his recaps of the 1980s i mean <laughs> that that's how i fall asleep each night with those types of conversations <laughs> with toby uh the, the the question i suppose i had for myself was more just a quick personal one and that, that was just mm. for yourself do you how, how do you remember the actual 1984 election playing out you know how, how do you remember maybe from a professional and also from a personal perspective was it quite a we've got this one in the bag let's just see how many states we get was there any nerves on, on your side or was it very much let's get down to business and let's prepare for a second term kind of thing more of the latter there was a there was a wonderful party on election night it was a bigger victory than we had than we I'm talking about my fellow speechwriters and I. We those those were my at that stage they were my best friends, and we were in and out of each other's offices and chatting with each other all the time. So it was a bigger victory even than we had hoped for. For us personally, who also admired Ronald Reagan, the big question in our minds when Gary Hart looked as though he would be a candidate. And then again, after that first debate, we didn't want to see Ronald Reagan begin to age in office. We didn't want to write for someone who was losing his powers during a second term. And 
that in this from the second debate on, that was no longer a a, a worry. The it really felt as though he was the, the economy had been dealt with. The victory in the 1984 election is huge, and now it was back to work. And in particular, let's carry on uh, with foreign policy. Of course, it's 1985, March of 1985, that Gorbachev comes along. By the way, one final point, since you asked a personal note, this is a final point to help listeners understand Ronald Reagan. I mentioned a moment ago that people felt affection toward him. There was for years, it's fallen into desuetude now, but William Sapphire, the who was a speechwriter for Nixon and was the New York Times columnist, in the 1980s founded a club for former and current presidential speechwriters. And we would get together in Washington every year or every 18 months for years and years. And there were two tables of writers who disagreed on politics, on issue after issue after issue, but who understood each other. And those tables were the Kennedy writers and the Reagan writers. And the reason for that was this is what we had in common. We both loved our president. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was the biggest thing that had ever happened to Ted Sorensen. And Ronald Reagan was the biggest thing that had ever happened to us. Richard Nixon's writers, they respected him, but they were happy they hadn't gone to jail. <laughs> Gerald Ford's, right? Okay, so you get the every one of these, the, the Johnson writers, he would berate them, he would lose his temper. Again, it was a complicated, but for the Kennedy writers and the Reagan writers, we just loved our presidents. And just before we finish, I just want to get a sense, like this was... This was really a realignment. You know, he won 49 out of 50 states. The kind of thing he had done um, hadn't really been done since, in terms of re-election since Eisenhower. Um, because Eisenhower had won both in, 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 in landslide like, like Reagan did. Young people, mm. people under the age of 30, voted for Reagan in the majority. That's, that's, that's exactly right. The, 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 it was the youngest that cohort out. that supported him most strongly. That's exactly right. Again, so again the liberals were the old people and the conservatives were Correct. The Correct. Correct. That's part of what made it so much fun in the 80s for us. We felt as though the future was ours. Um, again, something that's difficult to... <laughs> Republicans who thought they were cool. That's something that takes, <laughs> that's an idea that it takes getting used to in 2020. Oh, well, um, I suppose the greatest takeaway we can get from this is that the greatest jobs creator in America wasn't actually Ronald Reagan during that time. And it was actually William F. Buckley. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think we should probably leave it on that beautiful bombshell. Um, we'll pro probably run out, yeah. run out of your time, Peter. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. It was uh, a real pleasure, and I uh, hope you had a, as much fun as we did. I, it was a pleasure, and it was fun, and I had no idea quite what to expect of you lot. So it <laughs> was know. not only fun, but a great relief. We're not so bad for a bunch of liberals living on an island which is slowly <laughs> decaying. Um, right, we should probably let you go now, Peter. Um, All right, take care. Thank you so much. Well, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the uh, the chat with Peter. It was certainly very enjoyable for us. And thanks again to Peter for being such a, a wonderful guest. That was very enjoyable and uh, good fun to have. See, uh, you can sometimes talk to Republicans. It can sometimes go okay. Uh, 
no i thank you again peter um so <laughs> this is now the kind of uh the post show as it were we've done we've done three shows on reagan uh we could probably talk at length on other topics to do with reagan but we've done three and that's probably enough for now um von what's your kind of thoughts on well what's your thoughts on reagan after doing three shows on them has anything kind of changed or is it you know is it still communism forever for you well it's always communism forever right <laughs> um going into this i mean i i knew like kind of peripheral stuff about reagan just being an american um growing up there having some republican friends but i'd never really gotten a chance to like sink my teeth in and kind of research about Reagan and certainly not have very in-depth conversations about Reagan. Um, so I really enjoyed doing this, this kind of trilogy, um, especially with the stuff that kind of aligned with my research. The, the Hollywood episode is one of my favorites for sure. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, and looking at the Christian right in different ways that I hadn't before, that was really interesting. Um, yeah, no, I really, I really enjoyed this. I'm happy that we did it um, on a selfish level so that I could kind of <laughs> research something that really interested me that I didn't have necessarily an excuse to before. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you guys for that. But on general perceptions of Reagan, um, I see him more as a human figure now, uh, especially really getting into the early Hollywood stuff and kind of seeing his personality in that way. I don't think politically my um, mm. my opinion of him has changed very much. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of glorification of Reagan mm -hmm. in American ideology um, that I don't necessarily feel is warranted, but mm -hmm. that's just a difference in opinion, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we, yeah. we had a very, you know, Peter was on the show and not only was a speechwriter for him, he actually, you know, he literally wrote a book on him. So yeah. Peter is going to be far more um, on side of, of Reagan. And in fact, he said that himself, you know, when uh, when he was working for him, you know, the Reagan writers really admired Reagan the way the JFK uh, writers really admired JFK. And you, you got that in the podcast uh, we just did, you know, the, the conversation we just had with Peter it was very much a almost a celebration of the 84 election because the 84 election was so one-sided you know the 84 election was essentially a celebration of reagan the the ads that um, pop up in the episode and that were played during the time were you know reagan's got the country back on track and isn't life wonderful again now obviously the reality of that is that it wasn't wonderful for lots of different people but it was wonderful enough for him to carry 49 out of 50 states and i think when you look at the 84 election i think you have to give it the context of this was a massive victory for reagan and it reflected the kind of feel-good spirit um that we saw reflected in the media of where america was compared to where america was in the late 70s for instance and i think peter kind of goes into that in the episode about you know certainly his own feelings that america brought uh, or reagan was able to bring american pride back as well as maybe bringing more jobs back to america as well yeah no of course and um, I'm happy you brought that up because I, I think it's really important that we have this kind of primary source in Peter of someone who was there and we got to kind of uh, 
carry out this this kind of oral history of talking to someone who was actually there instead of just reading um, kind of reports of these things. So that was it was a really great and brilliant opportunity to be able to talk to someone who was in that position so close to Reagan writing his words mm. um, and someone whose whose politics are so different from my own. Yeah. Um, that was it was very interesting. I mean, just if you're not aware, I wasn't actually before I did a little bit of research, but Peter's actually the, the writer behind, you know, Tear This Wall Down, which is, you know, iconic in itself. Um, so it's just kind of oh, cool, wow. you know, just to uh, be involved uh, in a podcast with someone who actually, you know, not only has their own Wikipedia page, but has a Wikipedia page for someone they wrote. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Toby, your kind of reflections on the three episodes and our, our chat with Peter? You know what, I think, you know, we've done three episodes here, but really we've done five episodes on Reagan. Very early on, we did the Malay speech about Jimmy Carter Mm. and Jimmy Carter trying to get a grip with the energy crisis and with also with Josh Levine did the episode on the Welfare Queen, Mm. which Mm -hmm. is something Reagan uh, created through his speeches, this idea of uh, defaming uh, uh, people who were, were received welfare at the time, which was, you know, something that was also quite popular at the time. Mm-hmm. And then we've done these three episodes on Reagan and much more on the impression of Reagan and how he presented himself. And to be honest, in terms of the policies here, you know, the supply side policies. Um, the, the 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 budget cuts, the tax cuts, the, the the welfare cuts. I mean, you know, these things, especially for the the groups, the very small group ultimately that came to um, contain the Democratic constituency that year. They were they were very hard and very harsh and had um, difficult effects for for the, for those people. But I think my impression on this podcast. And I think why um, it's you know so great to have people who were there at the time or who who experienced it. My impression of the podcast is that um, that the Reagan victory was inevitable mm. and had been coming for a while. This is why you have this um, great victory in '72. It's a storming majority. In '76, the Republicans lose, but that's a backlash against Watergate. And Carter only wins by a hair. Mm-hmm. Then in 1980, you have another large victory, in part caused by you know Anderson. And then in 84, you have another majority, and the the Democrats don't take back the White House until 92, and still they're losing the 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 House and Senate majorities that they they've they've had. So my my idea is almost that this grand victory. It was coming. There's, there's so many parts of the the liberal constituencies, whether it's Labour or, um, you know, whether it's the South. They just they just were no longer part of the the liberal coalition anymore. And this victory, in its you know in and how um, overwhelming it was, and 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 how you know almost trite it was in 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 this presentation just so, sort of underlines all, all of that. And I think it's it's something that's been coming on this podcast. And it's it's something I, I you know, I really wanted to get an impression out of. I mean, even, you know, even younger people, people 
our age voted for, voted for Ronald Reagan. It, it, it was a, a confluence of forces with the, of, of, that really reflected a, a changing political sociology. And yeah, and I think that's really why I wanted to to do this episode. And um, and I yeah and I yeah, absolutely. And you know there are things you know we we could look into more. You know we made the choice not to look at his um, uh, years as uh, California governor, but you know that's something we could could have potentially looked into. We could talk more about his uh, relationship on um, sort of foreign affairs, and you know Russia being a a, a big one as far as the eighties were concerned. And especially for Ronald Reagan and obviously the special relationship with Margaret Thatcher. And of course, you know, if you're talking about Ronald Reagan and, and those conservative 80s years, you've also got the AIDS crisis as well, which mm-hmm. was, you know, so devastating to so many Americans and so many people around the world. But specifically focused on Reagan and America, you've got, you know, the AIDS crisis being such a, a, a terrible thing for them. I, I guess it, it's hard to, you know, without just spending another sort of five hours going through this kind of thing I suppose it's kind of difficult for us to fully paint the picture of Ronald Reagan as a man and specifically Ronald Reagan as a president and you know perhaps that is something we will look back on later and maybe you know potentially do more shows on you know there, there is always room for you know different guests to come on and I, I think something like the AIDS crisis in America is a particularly interesting one when looking at the dynamic of, of 1980s politics. Um, Vaughn I, I know obviously you're um, you know left of Castro as it were so um, um, I'm guessing that would probably be something of, of interest when we get to the more um, maybe sort of uh, detrimental side of 80s conservatism I mean like yeah I, I think it's definitely worth talking about those things um, especially the AIDS crisis and how that's kind of still impacting a huge group of people um, and groups in in kind of intersectional ways, different like social perceptions and cultural mm-hmm. perceptions of LGBTQ peoples and um, especially LGBT people of color uh, in the U.S. Um, yeah, we we didn't touch too much on that. We we definitely talked about it a bit uh, in the mm-hmm. Christian Right episode. Sure, um, but that's something that that I would for sure be interested in um, bringing out more on. And his years in in California, um, Peter raised something about that during during this conversation that um, California was was very different in the '80s from how we kind of view it now. Where he said something like seventy or seventy five percent of the population was east of the Mississippi, um, and that's that really kind of tilts my perspective on hmm. California and okay. how I think of it now. Um, so I think that would be really interesting to talk about too, about what it actually meant to be the governor of California in the 1980s. And okay. then we can talk about um, Schwarzenegger also. And I know uh, you want to do that, Simon. I mean, I just, I, I'll be honest, I got the Honor Schwarzenegger um, autobiraphy on on uh, on audio. Uh, audio <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> It's like the story of the 20th century. This guy growing up with his dad, who's sort of a Nazi, um, <laughs> you know, and then he becomes a bodybuilder and he becomes, you know, married to the, uh, the the Kennedys and he becomes a movie star and then he becomes the governor of California. I mean, it, it's it's kind of like 
it's kind of like my Forrest Gump, I think. I think that that's how I would describe it. Um, it's yeah, maybe maybe we can uh, if we really are short on material, maybe we can have an Arnold Schwarzenegger trilogy as well. Um, I guess I think the, the last thing I, I oh, would sorry, say because because Vaughn brought the AIDS crisis is the AIDS crisis. Um, there's issues of welfare. Um, you know, a new relationship between um, the, the population and the government when it comes to crime. And I think it all, it's all summed up by Mario Cuomo, who was the father of, the, of Andrew Cuomo, who's mm. the governor of New York, when he came up in the 1984 convention and, you know, to barnstorming applause, talked about there, there were two Americas in his, in his speech, the, the it's almost like a tale of two cities, you know, that, that, you know, it's, it's good on the surface, but underneath there, there, there is, there is suffering. And I think it's that kind of stuff that's really been, um, maybe left out of our trilogy, mm. but it isn't the, um, overarching impression of, what happened in the 80s or what had been happening in American society and what coalesced in, in 1984. But it is a part of the story. Absolutely. And, you know, there will always be parts of the story you simply just can't get into for, for time, uh, for resource as much as anything else. I suppose one of the, maybe the last remaining elephant in the room to kind of touch upon is you may, any listeners may have uh, picked up on is that uh, Peter is a uh, Donald Trump supporter. Uh, surprisingly, we're not Donald Trump supporters. Um, I guess it's maybe a bit unusual for us to have someone on who is a Trump supporter, but then we have we were speaking to a Republican. You know, this is someone who has been a Republican for decades. This is someone who worked for Ronald Reagan. I guess it shouldn't be that much of a surprise that um, <laughs> that uh, he is a supporter of Donald Trump. And I guess maybe from my own personal point of view, it kind of reiterates the point that when you have movements such as the Never Trumpers and the Lincoln Project, et cetera, that they are out with the political norm of the conservatives and even the kind of quote-unquote intelligent conservatives, which obviously Peter is, you know, they are still supporting Trump because of, you know, what he can do for them politically, even if, as Peter says, you know, he maybe doesn't agree on some personal actions of Donald Trump. Um, Vaughn, I don't know your sort of summation of... uh, of having a, a Trump supporter on talking about republicanism other than maybe just, you know, please go out and vote to defeat Donald Trump. Pretty please. I mean, definitely that. Please go out and vote. Um, I won't tell you how to vote, but preferably <laughs> not for him. Um, but no, I think it's really important that we do have different voices on. Um mm-hmm. I know that we've we've talked about this at length and um, as Toby has said, like this is an impression of America and it would be wrong for us to not have um, the views of a conservative who is very close to Reagan and um, who is still, I mean, one thing that kind of struck me is that I was thinking about Reagan in such a like different time period, but Mm -hmm. Peter's quite young. Yeah. And um, I think that kind of like put this in perspective that that the 80s weren't that long ago. Um, mm-hmm. And 
these people are still very politically active. And it's very important that we, we have that conversation and that open conversation about how this not so distant past is still impacting the future or the present um, and what that means for different people politically. So as, as much as I disagree with his politics um, and I disagree with supporting Donald Trump, especially with the rampant claims that have been made in the last couple of weeks, um, <laughs> I think it's important that we have a voice like his on for the kind of historical aspect of getting that true impression of what it was like to be in America in the 1980s. Yeah, and this wasn't a let's have a Republican on so we can talk about Trump and then we can challenge his beliefs. This is a we were talking to a primary source who yeah. is informing us about a subject which he was, you know, very much, very much involved with, and very much a, a, a if not a key component, a component of the the eighty four and uh, the sort of general um, presidential vibe of the eighties with his uh, his um, support of and work for. Ronald Reagan. Uh, Toby, is there kind of anything more to add on on that, or are you just kind of pleased that we actually managed to get someone of, of Peter's uh, uh, Republican uh, nobility know, it's, it's on the show? It's fantastic to get Peter, you know, someone who's mm-hmm. connected to mm-hmm. William F. Buckley, the, 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 the intellectuals of the Hoover Institute, people like Friedman, even Christopher Hitchens, you know, who mm-hmm. Peter was very, very, very close to, and didn't owe to and yeah i mean it, it is and and um as adam johnson said when he was on the podcast co- covering never trump but never trump is really like like one to three percent mm-hmm. uh, you know of the electorate or of the republican electorate is not you know it's not a big mm-hmm. people who are republicans who've been republicans for um, 30 years of, you know, they, they support Trump. I mean, um, we we're considering other people who were involved in the Reagan uh, elections, and they also support Trump. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's super important to get people who experienced the time period, were part in the time period, and we're part of the the I think the, the overall sense of the the time period that impression, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah, and, and I absolutely I do think here, you know, I don't want to be bashful, but I think here we have looked towards the media. It's not necessarily most detailed realism, you know, as historians of the events and the places. Mm-hmm. It's much more like impressionist art, almost. You know, we're trying to get you the experience of the feel of the time, yeah. what it was like, you know, but what it felt like, as opposed to everything that that happened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think um, this was a fantastic episode for being able to do that. Absolutely, as you said, Toby, the chance of USA, USA, and the. The good morning, you know, morning in America and all that kind of stuff that I imagine would have been the, the feeling for many Americans during the, the 84 election. Um, Toby, I suppose I can't really let this episode go without going um, to the probably most important part of our conversation with Peter, which was getting career advice from William F. Buckley. Just how jealous are you? 
<laughs> I'm still steaming, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, and it and it's probably why Peters come to represent that, you know, part of the Republican Party because he was so close to to figures uh, mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. And I would say, like, in our selection of episodes, you know, like, it's it's tacitly clear that, you know, we are liberals, but in our characterizations of, you know, whether it's Buckley or Rand or Reagan, we really have looked to try to find out why it was they were successful, why people mm-hmm. were interested in these characters. And yeah, and I think that is part of the purpose of the, the podcast. And I think we've been successful in, in, in doing that. Well, I definitely think you can see a lineage there from, you know, you, you've got Rand, you've got Buckley, you've got um, Peter, and now you've got Vaughn. So I think you can mm-hmm. definitely see that transition over time. Um, mm-hmm. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yes. That was a On joke. A list with Ayn Rand. Yes. <laughs> so you know you made it. You know you've made it. Okay. Well, I was going to make a joke about New Jersey there, Vaughn, but um, <laughs> probably only so many things I can. New Jersey and Ayn Rand, Simon. Come on. Uh, that's a uh, boggles the mind. Those two together. Um, <laughs> Right. Is there anything more you'd like to add on Reagan, um, or shall we call this an end? No, I think it was a great tri- trilogy. I think so too. I think it was very yeah. fun. Um, right, Toby. Um, other than <laughs> plotting ways to get back at Peter for stealing your Buckley career, um, <laughs> <laughs> no final words. Oh my god. Shall, shall we? Shall we? Leave, shall we leave it on that mental image of uh, of, a, of a young Toby writing to? Uh, if you must. <laughs> <laughs> okay right well um yeah thank you for uh, listening to the show we'll have another one for you in the near future uh please check out uh, impressionsamerica.com as well we've got some articles on there and we'll be adding some new content in the near future and if you like the show please you know rate it accordingly uh, on itunes or wherever you rate podcasts so uh, we'll have another episode for you in the near future as i said and yeah try and keep safe and uh yep just um you know, try and survive 2020 because it keeps getting weirder. Uh, right. And from, go vote. Go vote. Absolutely. Um, as long as you're like American, because like, I don't think it would work for Toby and I. Right. But, you know, we'll, we'll still give, we'll give it a shot anyway. Um, right. From Toby, from Vaughn and myself, Simon, uh, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye.